nice to be able to chat to you again. It's been a while since I actually last spoke. So um, I actually want to start with a, a scenario, which is imagine that you're in a forest. You're taking a stroll in a forest and you come to a clearing. And in the middle of this clearing, there is a giant metallic orb and it is just floating there in the middle of the forest, unattached to anything, completely silent, just there, without any explanation. If you were to see such a thing, you would be very likely to ask the question, why is this here? And a few other questions, how did this get here? What is it? And what is, so there's this strangeness about this kind of an event, but what's particularly strange to me is that you in the forest would be unlikely to ask the question, which is, I think, more significant. Why is anything there rather than just nothing? Everything that we encounter every day is, in my estimation, a complete miracle. How in the world is there something rather than nothing? And I find it amazing that we take the world as a fact without really realizing just how strange a fact it is. Um, I, I find that children, well, my little da daughter is obviously an example of this, are not that unaware of the amazement of being. So they'll tend to ask questions like, why am I here? As in, why, why is there me rather than not me? A kind of rephrasing of the metaphysical question, why is there something rather than nothing? I'm very interested in the issue of remembering being. It's something that I actually do a lot of my, my research in. I hardly ever share with you what I actually research, so this is some of that. Um, I do a lot of my research in metaphysics, met specifically metaphysical theology. And I think part of the reason why this, I've tried to figure out why I actually bother with this, is because I'm very aware that I'm also in perpetual danger of forgetting being, forgetting the, the miracle of existence. Um, and so I, I think... I've also discovered that in, in all the stuff I read, whenever I read stuff about the structure of reality, I feel, I feel myself being put back together, which is quite a significant thing because a lot of academic discourses tend to be very divisive and corrosive and very corrupting of, of I think, the psyche generally. I think if you want to uh, know, know what anxiety looks like, you should spend a lot of time among academics. They're very anxious people. And um, I think part of the problem is, is that these things that they're engaging with are constantly pulling things apart. So I find engaging with the question of being and the question of why, which we'll get to, um, is particularly amazing. And one of, one of the entry points into engaging with the meaning of being and with remembering being is the question why. Nietzsche is very famous for having said a lot of things that are very... Uh, provocative and brilliant and often wrong uh, but he he says this one thing which I really love he says he who has a why can bear any how and I think he gets at something quite amazing here if we want to be able to bear uh, life we need to actually have to understand at a very intimate level the reason for it we need to have a reason for being so let's think about what's going on with this question why Isla um, isn't quite at the Y phase, she's just gone out of it, but it's an amazing thing to see. The, 
She'll ask why. And by the way, I, I decided right early on, I knew the questions were coming, and I was going to be enthralled by it. And I was, and am. She still asks lots of questions. The, the typical experience, and it seems fairly universal, is the ch- a child will ask why, and the parent will then give a response. So the child will ask, why is the sky blue? And the parent will give a response because of the nature of light refraction or something. <laughs> Reflects the ocean. Yeah, give, give some kind of answer. And then the child will ask, why? And then you'll give another answer. And then they'll ask, why? And then it'll be this sort of tennis match of, of question and answer until who gets exhausted first? It is not the child. They're fine. You eventually just go... Because I say it is. That's the t- that's the typical response. That was never my response. I refuse to go that way. But that is a very interesting thing. What is going on? And I think that's that. If we could understand what is going on when a child asks why, we would have some phenomenal insights into a lot of things. And ultimately, as I will show today, uh, an opening into a possible way to prove the existence of God. It starts very small. Why, why is the sky blue and ends with something very big? Um, it's only one of the proofs uh, for the existence of God. There are many, but this is the one that I, I'm particularly fond of. So think of why questions. You can, ask, you can ask billions of them. I just found a few that are commonly asked, apparently. Why is a pebble smooth? Why do dogs eat grass? Why are cats afraid of cucumbers? To which I immediately thought, are cats afraid of cucumbers? (laughs) And how come I didn't know this? This is useful information. My whole life has been a lie. Why do men have nipples? Very important stuff to know. Uh, Why am I here? So let's look at what is going on when we're asking the question why. Firstly, you are there to be able to ask the question. It's a given, but it's something that we take for granted. And you are also there reaching out for an answer. As soon as you ask a question, you are in fact reaching out beyond your own being. I find that amazing, that you can actually have an intrinsic need. All of us have this intrinsic, intrinsic need to get beyond ourselves. Questioning is the way that we do that. At least one of the fundamental ways. Our senses, in fact, do this. As soon as you you engage with the world in a very sensory manner, which is you looking at me in this case, with those engaged expressions, that that is a sense of going beyond yourself already. So that, I think that's quite profound. It means we must have a tacit awareness that the single instance that we're encountering is embedded within a totality. An implicit awareness that the thing that we're asking why about does not explain itself. It reaches out beyond itself. Always. That's a a mind-boggling thing. We must have a tacit awareness that reality as a whole allows for many more possibilities than the particular reality that we happen to be experiencing right now. And we must have a tacit sense. Tacit meaning unspoken, but it's just a... It's naturally there, a tacit sense that the answer is out there. We naturally assume there is an answer. Think about that. That's just dwell on the miracle of that actual thought. I think it's amazing. So when I ask, why am I here, which is a question I think we need to ask 
fairly regularly. It's a helpful question. Um, I am assuming quite naturally that my existence is not a good enough explanation for itself. I assume that to exist at all means to be dependent, to be secondary, or much further, further down the line than secondary. So everything that is there is dependent. If I ask, uh, this is a very important question, who let the dogs out? Who, who, yeah. who? In other words, why are the dogs out? Who would do such a thing? Why is this happening to me? I find myself accepting without questioning it that the immediate reality implies that which is beyond what is. That it implies what is not immediate. The present, which is obvious, implies that which is not obvious. Now think of the, the mode of cognition required to be able to even conceive of that which is not present. And little children do this without even blinking. It's the most natural thing. It comes naturally to us to go, I see everything here, and this is amazing. I think it's probably one of the reasons why a lot of people get into psychedelics, is because it is in some sense a recovery of the sheer astonishment of theirness. At least as, as people have described it to me. <laughs> Why always assumes that the single manifestation of the totality of all that is does not exhaust reality at all. Everything that we encounter is contingent. That, so that's a, in philosophical language, contingent means everything could have been otherwise than what it is. You get a sense of that in the question, why? Why do I have two arms? It implies, I could have had four, I could have had 17 eyes, who knows? The, the, th the reality, the encounter that we have with the immediate presumes that what is could have been otherwise than what it is. And this is something that even the, the atheistic, sort of anti-creationist group tends to fixate on the otherwiseness of creation. They're, they're obsessed with it. And I find that that's so interesting. They're presuming contingency in everything, which, it, which is true, because their contingency is in everything. To ask why is to recognize that this particular finite and conditioned manifestation of reality, whatever we're asking why about, has a cause. So when, whenever you hear the word a cause, I, it's actually helpful to hear that the B before that. Everything has a cause means everything has a because. Very simple, but quite helpful. It means that everything that we encounter is intelligible. It makes sense. Things have to make sense at a fairly intrinsic level, even before we fully understand them. To be able to ask the question why of anything that we don't understand, we actually have to on some level go, I, I recognize that this thing is intelligible. And that's amazing. And we'll get to how that relates later to, not too far from now, to um, the question of God's existence. And I'm using the word existence in an analogical sense, obviously, because uh, God does not exist in the same way that we do, um, as, as we'll get to. So everything that we encounter is intelligible. To make sense of anything presumes a bridge between mind and being that is just there. We don't have to prove it. It's already present. We have to assume it. Philosophers who try to prove it, I mean, I'm thinking of Descartes, who's got a, a rather dodgy proof for it. There, there's a kind of 
a kind of problem that always arises in just trying to prove the obvious. And yet, in some sense, I'm trying to... Well, I'm working from the obvious towards a proof. That's different. And, and part of this idea that everything is intelligible gets back to a, classic, a classical definition of truth, in fact. That being itself is truth. That intelligibility and being are the same thing. They're not different things. So we don't impose mind on being. Which is, so sometimes when we're thinking about things, we think, well, I'm thinking, and my thinking is over and against or opposite to, to things, to reality. But the, the older conception, which I think is more, more plausible and more livable, is that mind and being are one. Inte intellection and being are the same thing. Um, we, we also understand, obviously, by the, looking at the, at the direct manifestation of reality as it is presented to our, us, that it will make more sense to us if we have the cause, if we have the because. So there's, there's a, a secondariness and a depend, dependence that is floating around on all contingent beings. Sorry about all the lengthy sentences. But that, that presumes that there is always a because. There's always something behind the thing. There's a thing behind the... I'm quoting Rob Bell. There's a thing behind the thing behind the thing, etc. Identifying cause and effect, so that's also we're thinking about mental operations here. Identifying cause and effect is a fairly simple mental op operation, actually. Animals do it all the time. If anyone of you has played with a dog, when you're throwing a ball for the dog to catch, and you throw it, or you, actually you don't, you pretend to throw it, the dog immediately assumes you have thrown it and runs, and then goes, wait, what's going on? and then comes back and realizes you still have the ball. And then you actually throw it. Well, that's a cause and effect relation. It's a fairly, fairly straightforward thing. But human beings ask the question why, or identify cause in a very different way. We're actually looking for the meaning of the thing, the significance of it. We're not just looking at cause and effect as, I mean, identifying it in a very direct material sense. Like, oh, well, you know, if someone got hit, then they got hit back. What we always want to know is the thing behind the thing, as in, what, what does that mean? Why is that going on? That's how we engage with, with everything, very naturally. But how can we do this if we're not aware that a particular reality does not explain itself and therefore needs explanation? In other words, how can we ask why if we're not aware that the being of the thing gains its meaning only by being related to its cause? The tricky thing is that in the modern era, we have come kind of reduced causality to two dimensions. Materi material causality, I'm going to come back to these. I'm not going to explain them immediately. Material causality and efficient causality. So our sense of cause and effect tends to be fairly Newtonian. Why is my head aching? Because I was sitting under a tree and an apple fell on it. So it's very like th there's this thing and that happened. We tend to think that that's what cause and effect is about, or why does my head ache? Because there was a politician who was accidentally talking. Um, but a lot, a lot more is always going on than just this basic cause in this kind of almost like animalistic mental operation, just very 
direct cause and effect relation. So it actually helps to get back to the classics, go back to Aristotle and his four causes. So he, he said that he noticed that change happens, which we all notice. Things are changing. So he started asking questions about what causes change to happen. In other words, what is the because behind change? And he, he identifies four causes. The material cause, the material is just the stuff it's made of. So a uh, chair comes from wood, wood comes from tree, etc. Tree comes from ground and comes from tree and so on. So he said, well, that's the material cause. But then there's also the, there's the formal cause. That's the, basically the pattern or the arrangement or design of the thing. The reason a chair is a chair is not merely because there was a tree. So the tree did, in some sense, cause the chair. But what also caused the chair, what the reason for its being, is the form of the chair, the pattern it takes up. Then there is an efficient cause. That's basically the, the agent or the environment that made the chair possible. So there was a carpenter, or there was, in the case of, say, pebbles eroding or whatever, there was a river. So there, there's an efficient cause, something acting on something else, an agent. And then there is the final cause. There is, included in the because of things, there is the actual purpose of the thing. What is the chair for? It's for picking up and throwing at people, if you're a protester. When we're, all, when we're asking why, we are always asking things along these lines. We're always asking what, what are the becauses? And it's helpful to actually have some kind of language of there are, are multiple things at play. There's no such thing, and this is also an enlightenment problem. Enli the, from the enlightenment, we think that there is something called monocausality. Everything is caused by one thing. It presents huge theological problems when it comes to que the question, for instance, of the will of God. Because there's a pres presumption in that question, usually, of monocausality. God pushed the trolley and then the trolley whacked into you. There's the, that's monocausality. It doesn't actually have an understanding of multiple causes at play. So something exists in a state of becoming or change. We, the change has been caused by something or other or several somethings or others. And to understand the cause of the change, the change that's happening, the cause because of it, and the change that's happening is to understand the thing itself. One of the fascinating things that when you pay attention to, they start with little kids asking the question why, is that they implicitly know when the answer is not good enough. And that, how does that happen? So they ask the question and then you give an answer, which is hopefully a good answer, and they know that that doesn't get to the bottom of things. They just know it. It's built into them. And we, we do this too. When an answer that is given to you is not satisfactory, and I have no doubt that that will be true of some of what I say, you will find it unsatisfactory. The point is that it is also contingent, what I'm saying, on many other things. You have to always be looking. But you know, there's this thing that I need to still figure out. There's something that I still need to dig a little bit into to, to, to find out. So we, we're actually decidedly non-subjectivist in our questioning. We, we don't want the answer that we like. We want the answer that is correct. And if we conflate those two, we're in huge trouble. Then, because then our questioning is dishonest. 
because it's just confirmation bias. I just want to prove what I already know. The fact that we feel an apparently final answer is inadequate is why we need to add a fifth cause. Because when you really think about it, the four causes do not account for everything. Because what, what the four causes are saying is that everything is, in some sense, Aristotle himself kind of hinted at a, a fifth cause in his four causes, but I'm going to kind of ignore that a little bit. The tendency is to, to get stuck in the world of the purely contingent. Everything is dependent on everything that is dependent on everything ad infinitum. So everything doesn't explain itself and is explained by everything else that also doesn't explain itself. Does that make sense? That, that's what happens if you're stuck purely in the contingent. So you need something, a thing, a really... Actually, you need a no thing behind the thing that explains everything. Something that isn't a thing uh, to explain it. So this is why philosophers posit that there has to be, by logical necessity, an ontological cause. A cause for the thing's being. You could, as many of us do actually quite naturally in, in everyday life, we could take for granted that every non-self-sustaining thing is just there. Or you could just marvel at the fact that it's there, um, at the amazing thereness of everything and, and of us. I mean, we're here too. But I think this is to, to accept a limit a little bit too quickly. We can only know the four causes and not the fifth. That would be basically what you're doing if you just say the contingent is all there ever is or ever was. So, and, and I think this is one of Hegel's um, more brilliant observations. Hegel is generally quite brilliant. He said that you can't really recognize a limit until you've gone beyond it. At least to some extent. You, you can't see that there is a limit unless you've al you already sense there's something that goes beyond the limit. And this is interesting because that's what I think the ontological cause helps us to see is beyond the limit of... Uh, of Aristotle's actual um, conception of, of causality. So, let's see how far we can get beyond the limit. What we know is that everything in its being and meaning is unsupported by itself. That's, that, that's, that's why we ask why. That's the basis of that question. But you don't really get to say that everything is ultimately without support, without also embracing what is ultimately a logical absurdity which is basically saying that everything is meaningful, everything has an answer to the question why, only insofar as it, there is no ultimate answer to the question why. In other words, everything, that, this is the absurdity of it, everything is meaningful because ultimately everything has no meaning. Which would mean, essentially, if I, if I were to ask you the question, why, why did my toast burn? The answer, who cares, would be just as adequate as the answer that you had the dial wrong on the toaster, which is, I think, as far as I can tell, the ontological natural state of a toaster. <laughs> that, that dial doesn't tell you what, what you want it to. It doesn't make sense to just get stuck in the contingent, because the contingent, the sum total of everything that is contingent, still doesn't explain why it is there. Why is there not something rather 
than nothing. So the contingency of being requires by logical necessity a necessary cause. This necessary cause, by definition, is that which exists through itself and is dependent on nothing else for its existence other than itself. That's, that's one way of beginning to understand the nature of God. Uh, God exists through himself. And because this necessary cause provides the final answer to existence, the existence of the whole of contingent reality, it must also, by logical necessity, answer every other question. So when you're, you're asking why about all of contingent reality, eventually you have to get below to that which calls all of contingent reality into being. And to answer that why, why is there something rather than nothing, is to find the actual source of every answer to all of contingent being. You're doing very well. <laughs> Sorry, this is, this is a little headier than, than perhaps is normal for a TGIF, but I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. <laughs> uh, this is to say that the complete set of answers to the complete set of questions must really exist in this necessary cause, or else no answers really exist at all, except in the form of deferred answers, because that's exactly why the kid gets so frustrated with the fact that you keep on answering with another thing of why is the sky blue, and you say, ah, because it reflects a sea. Oh, that's the stupid answer, but anyway... Why is the sea blue? Because it reflects the sky. The, the child wants to know more because you keep on deferring the meaning of the thing to something else that doesn't really fully, fully explain itself. There has to be something that doesn't actually have to explain itself, but just is. Another way of understanding this is to look at the world as a world of becoming. So Aristotle viewing change as the starting point. Well, if everything changes, is there something that doesn't? How can we recognize change apart from something that is changeless? Something that we have an intuitive, intrinsic knowledge of. We would need to have that to be able to see that, that change is happening. You, you can only see change against the background of unchanged. If you're trying to see change against the background of change, you have see no that? stability. And possibly postmodern philosophy. <laughs> so, so for all ex for all the answers to exist in the necessary cause, it must in fact be the source of all the answers, just as it is the source of the reality that we know. It's not just that we know it is the final answer, as in it is just the object that solves the problem, but that it knows itself completely and utterly, and it knows itself as the answer in a way that our knowledge can't even fully account for. It is actually safe to say that whatever the necessary cause is, it is meaning itself, the source of meaning, which is interesting because that's the word that John uses to describe God, logos, meaning. So that's one provisional way of understanding God. And so that, that basically covers the, the proof of God. Now, whether you follow the logic of that or not, it does have some very interesting implications, and those are the things that I want to just briefly look at as we, as we conclude. If being as we know it stems from one source, 
then reality is, by definition, grounded in unity. All that is real is grounded in unity. And that unity, as the classical tradition um, says, is basically the same as, unity is the same as the good, is the same as the true, is the same as the beautiful, which is an amazing thing. All of reality is grounded in that unity. And if our being and intellection are married and grounded in this unity, then it is possible to know what is ultimately true. Ultimately true. It's almost easier to know what is ultimately true than it is to understand the contingent reality in some sense, which I think is rather remarkable. So we may lose the details, but we may still be able to anchor ourselves in that which is ultimately true. It also means that we can find our place in this unity. I think if there's one one problem in, in the world today that is particularly pervasive is that people have a a real struggle to feel home, to feel that they're at home. To, so there's this, kind of, we live in a world of homeless people. I mean, even people with actual literal homes are still homeless. There's this kind of, because everyone is caught up in the purely contingent. Everything is floating around. Floating signifiers, if you want to use uh, Lacanian uh, philosophy. There's this kind of detachment. But if everything is grounded in unity, then it is possible to know this unity and to find your place in it, uh, to feel at home. And it means that ultimately the universe is not hostile. Einstein said this thing, I think it's so brilliant. He said that it is the, of the utmost significance that we figure out whether the universe is hostile or on our side, essentially. I'm misquoting him, but that's the essential idea. So it's, we need to figure out, is it for us or is it against us? It would also mean that violence is simply that which refuses to conform to the unity of being. So violence is an anomaly that seeks to act against the ultimate unity of things. But if we reject the logical necessity of a necessary cause, we're left with all kinds of philosophical dilemmas. It is to assume that at best everything amounts to little more than a plurality of things that is endlessly that are endlessly deferring their own meaning until they result in literally absolutely nothing. The world then, as Nietzsche put it, would only be becoming. And Nietzsche said that the, the highest form of the will to power is to posit being. In other words, you don't find it, you do not find the unity of being, it's something that you have to posit, you have to, in, you have to force it on reality. It's a, it's a terribly violent way of, of seeing things, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of po postmodern philosophy assumes that, that theory itself is violence. You can't not be violent. That's, that's the, the ground of everything, is that everything is disunified, everything is fragmented and broken. And you have to force the good, whatever that is to you, subjectively, onto that which exists. It's a form of terrible violence. In short, um, reality is violence and nothing but violence, and our meaning-making would reflect this reality, which is arbitrary at best and total chaos at worst. In that world, where the contingent is only the only thing, uh, there is no real possibility of truth. 
we've arrived at a, what you know, some people are talking about, the post-truth age or whatever. Well, the reason that that can be legitimated is because of a purely, an understanding of the world is, is, that is purely contingent. Everything is reliant on everything else, but also everything is ultimately nothing. So you have to, in that scenario, say, well, it doesn't really matter what is true. Because even the bridge between mind and being, there's no real source of unity there. It has to be created, enforced. Um, and I, I think that's one of the scariest con uh, consequences of, of living in an age where the contingent is taken to be the only possible reality. We would need to basically, if, if we were living in that world, impose our so-called truth. And it would be our truth, not, not someone else's. Their truth doesn't matter because they're not us. For, for, I mean, totally arbitrary reasons. We'd have to impose our truth on others, not because it is true, but because it's what we want. So, given the the one thing that I've been thinking a lot about is the fact that the world seems to be a, in a state of perpetual nightmare, which I think all of us are looking at what's going on in our country, but looking at what's going on globally. And it's a, it's a total disaster. <coughs> and it's an interesting thing that when you're, when you're stuck, let's say, in the state of the purely contingent, it's very easy to start believing Reality is ultimately violent. This is just how it is. We just have to accept and we need to fight for our rights. That kind of thing. But the, the Christian worldview and specifically the, um, the, this idea of, of returning to the, the, the wisdom of the ancients posits that there needs to be, and I'm going to use the, the technical phrase, an onto, there needs to be an ontological prioritization of peace over violence. It has profound implications for a lot of things. It means that we discover truth through language. In a contingent, purely contingent reality, we don't discover anything. We just force, everything is forced on everything else. Language itself is manipulation. It's, it's not there to discover anything. It's just a, a manipulative force. And I've also started thinking that if, if we were to want to develop a legitimate and helpful political ontology, a, a politics that actually affects things in a positive way, we would need to be reliant on a kind of ontology of peace, which is an ontology of the unity of all being, rather than dwelling in this space of perpetual violence. That means our ethics itself would have to be an ethics of the given and the gift. And I think that's the thing that I keep on coming back to when I contemplate all of these things, is that it's a gift. Some, someone, the ultimate source of all, of all that is noble and real, gave us being and gave us this world. And we can actually know that source and, and move you know, the source gives a reality to to us and reality is returned to that source at every moment and we can go back there to an ethics of the given what the world has ended up with right now is an ethics of rights rights are rooted in what you lack not what you have that's part of the there, there's sort of an interesting consequence of thinking about something as as apparently Heidegger said that metaphysics is violence. 
but he had a very particular and I think warped understanding of metaphysics. Metaphysics is that which says you have to humbly submit yourself to that which is the source of all reality. This is what is. Be humble in the face of it. Whereas a lot of philosophy today says, no, we need to, reality is a struggle, it's violence, we need to, we need to find, we need to create what is right, and then we need to make it happen. So there's, there are implications for the whole of life and not just for, for thinking at a very abstract level.